0: Okay. Hello, everyone. Corey DeVos from Integral Life. Uh, today's a very special day. We're joined today by a man who has played such a pivotal role in my own life, uh, in my own career, and in my own family. Uh, he's a man I'm very happy to know as my mentor and my colleague and my very dear friend, Mr. Ken Wilbur. How are you, Ken? Good,
1: buddy. Good to Good. see
0: you. Oh, great to see you. I'm really, really happy you could join us today. And i um, you know, uh, really excited to do the show with you every month, which we 're going to be doing every second Saturday of each month uh, it 's going to be a lot of fun and you know I thought before we begin, Ken, I wanted to, to share just a real brief story. Um, you know, I remember when I first met you and started working with you about fifteen years ago, um, you know, I had basically turned up on your doorstep like a sad puppy in a rainstorm. <laughs> Right. And, uh, you know, right after I first met you, I had a, I had a dream about you. And for whatever reason, that dream has stuck with me over the years. It was really vivid. And yet, at the same time, it was, you know, an exceptionally ordinary dream. Um, and in my dream, I was, I was sitting at a coffee shop in Boulder, and I was sort of looking out the window at the mountains and the trees. And uh, you walked into the coffee shop and sat in the seat right next to me, right at the window looking out. And you began to ask me some questions uh, just about my life and, you know, what brought me to your work and why I decided to move out here and all that. And you sort of just pace- patiently listened to me while I blabbed away. And then right in the middle of the conversation, you paused and you looked at me right in the eyes. And then you asked me, do you like fishing? And it was a weird question. I mean, it was, it was such a weird casual question, but you asked it like with such gravity I I didn't really know how to answer and I remember in my dream I just kind of stared back at you not really sure what to say. I think I eventually said sure and then you know you simply said to me we should go fishing together and then I woke up with a big smile on my face and you know I just want to say Ken after all these years it's 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 nice to finally go fishing with you (laughs) and uh, you know I really look forward to, to dropping a line into that vast deep ocean of super mind that's sitting on your shoulders. Cool. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so let's get started. Uh, today, we've got a handful of questions for you to respond to. Uh, in the future, we'll probably invite some of our members to actually hop on the call and, and do these questions with you so they can interact with you in, in real time. But for our first call, I figured we'd just keep it between the two of us. Um, so I'll ask some questions that will be submitted to us. You'll read some of the other questions that have been submitted, and we'll go ahead from there. Does uh, that sound cool to you? Awesome. And you know these I, I, I want to say these questions are obviously coming from some of the smartest and wisest and most physically attractive members of our audience. Um, and on that note, I thought, you know the first question is from me. Um, so here's my question. It's a long one, so bear with me. Here we go. We are all watching with broken hearts as the latest stories around the Trump administration's separation of immigration families, and internment of children of all ages, as well as the accusations that these children might be being abused and given psychotropic drugs in order to keep them sedate, as well as the failure to reunite many of these children with their families, even after the parents have been deported. This feels to me like a, you know, a genuine evil that seems to be creeping across the world, particularly in the West, and a great many find themselves at a loss when it comes to actually responding from an integral point of view to these, to these nightmares. And here in Integral Land, we're often and you know rightfully critical of the worst excesses of the Green Altitude, and by extension, those who identify with the political left. You wrote an entire book about this, Boomeritis, which I often joke with you has metastasized in the years since you wrote the book into an even more nasty Millennialitis over the last decade or so. However, it seems increasingly clear that in today's world, the excesses of the political right, mostly coming from a red and amber altitude have become particularly dangerous in the age of Trump and likely pose a far greater threat to global civilization than anything we're currently seeing from the left. For example, placing developmentally vulnerable kids in tender age centers, which is really a type of internment camp for young young immigrant children and infants, seems to me to be way more corrosive to our social values our global standing and our national identity than any safe space on the left could ever hope to be i'm not a fan of slippery slope arguments but this is one hell of a greasy hill and concentration camps are clearly a lot worse than safe spaces and you add to that trump's continued adulation of some of the world's worst pre-modern autocrats and his petulant alienation of our modern and post allies seen most recently at the G7 conference. And it seems clear that we're dealing with one of the most regressive political forces since World War II, which is already beginning to undermine the geopolitical structures and alliances that have stabilized and supported the West over the last 70 years. So here's my hypothesis. It seems obvious to me, and again, this is just my own view. uh, It seems obvious to me that the excesses of the political right present a more brute force threat to the world in the short term. However, it may be that the excesses of the political left are equally corrosive, but in a more sort of insidious and long-term fashion, since they diminish our ability to adequately contain and resist the regressive forces that are now coming from the right all throughout the Western world. And they do this, you know, for a few, you know from a few different kinds of places. Uh, you know, they dissolve the amber structures that are supposed to put a cap on our collective red impulses. They create postmodern social media platforms that actually reinforce anti-intellectualism, narcissism, and tribalism. They perpetuate a strain of cultural relativism that makes it impossible to say these values are superior to those values, even while, you know, enforcing the superiority of their own values. And they plunge our culture into what I call a Warholian nightmare, where everyone's 15 minutes of fame are being stretched out indefinitely and really become the basis of a new set of 21st century immortality projects. So this, you know, gets especially difficult when a lot of these people, a plurality of the people who are signaling green virtues and slogans, are not themselves coming from the green altitude cognitively, but are actually enacting green platitudes from often red or amber altitudes, which we'll get to in the next question. So all that said, I guess my questions for you are, A, is it possible that within our audience, within the integral community, that some people's green allergy is causing them to overlook or minimize the dangers coming from the political right? Should integral thinkers be paying at least as much attention to the excesses of the right as we do to those coming from the political left? Question number two is what sort of heuristic guardrails can integral enforce in order to help sort of downregulate the political left and support the healthiest possible expression of the green altitude? How can we support the continued unfolding of green without saying, well, just be more integral? and then the last question is what are some appropriate integral responses in all four quadrants to the outrage the justified outrage that the trump administration is creating how should we hold this in our hearts and minds in the upper left how should we relate and engage with each other differently in the lower left what actions can we be taking in the upper right and how can we organize a bit more effectively uh and exert real integral power in the lower right so now i'm going to finally stop talking, give you a chance to talk for a little bit. Um, and I'm really curious what you have to say. <laughs>
1: um, it's a lot of material uh, covering a lot of area. Um, I jotted down uh, notes in each one of these. And in some cases you're talking about the uh, problems of the extreme um, left and then problems of the extreme right uh, and how it's, you can go back and forth on you know just which one is 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 the most horrendous, but you are um, also asking a question um, isn't isn't the extreme right producing uh, some really severe problems that integral people have to to pay attention to as well so um I jotted those down and made notes on them, and I'm just going to sort of go through these notes and, and, and give some um, reflections on them. Perfect. Um, when you say, however, it may be that the excesses of the political left are equally corrosive, but in a more insidious and long term fashion, since they diminish our ability to adequately contain and resist the regressive forces that are now coming from the right. And you mentioned uh, several of those areas. Uh, And I would add, this is looking at um, some of the uh, problems that's coming from uh, the far left. Um, And I would also add that most centrally And all of the ones that you mentioned, we have really most crucially, this sort of broken grain um, core dynamic, which is the denial of truth and in any meaningful way that there really isn't anything such as truth. There's just cultural constructions. And this is the deepest and most corrosive disaster of all of the other problems. Because this is the one that eats away at every democratic culture we have. It eats away at science, at medicine, at journalism, education, at academia. It's disastrous. Um, And that is indeed why, in the long term, this problem is almost certainly the most uh, insidious. Um, You uh, then switch to the other side, which is, should integral thinkers be paying at least as much attention to the excesses of the right as we do to those coming from the political left? And the answer there, of course, is absolutely. Um, Wrong is wrong. Uh, And the problem is we have to do our best to balance all of the first-tier stages, uh, which are constantly at war. Mm -hmm. We have to attempt to balance them until second-tier reaches something like 10%, and we'll start to instigate that balance from within. And until that time, it's sort of six of one and half dozen of the other, right. as to which is the most catastrophic, um, whether the far left or the far right. Generally, I would agree that the far right might indeed be capable of doing more damage in the short term uh, and left-wing uh, in, in, in the long run. Uh, but both of them are either coming from or regressing to this absolutistic amber stance. And that's what makes them so uh, bizarre. Um, both of them are equally playing identity politics mm-hmm. where you're allowed to celebrate your tribe but only in the ways that your tribe differs from other tribes. You're never allowed to celebrate that which all tribes have in common. And so this is a very prescription for retribalization and absolute social fragmentation. And both sides are giving us that. And that's what's really kind of uh, nightmarish. Yeah. Um, you say, what sort of heuristic hard rails can integral enforce in order to help down regulate the political left and support the healthiest possible expression of the green altitude? How can we support the continued unfolding of green without just saying, just be more integral? Right. And one of the fundamental ways we do it is by example, Um, by actually doing this in real life. So you want diversity. This is how you get real diversity. You want inclusivity, truly inclusiveness. This is how you really get it. Not the retribalism, that you're following now. Um, The far left said, "Okay, here are one of the tribes that you must belong to. Women, Black, uh, LGBTQ, Latino, Native Americans, disabled, and Muslims. White supremacists looked at all of that tribalism and said, fine, I can play that ideological politics game. Aryans are better than every single one of those tribes. So both sides are merely ethnocentric stage of development. None of them want to treat all humans fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. Each of them treats its own tribe fairly, but everybody else is on their own. Mm. Muslims do not treat women fairly. Women don't have common cause with toxic masculinity in the patriarchy. Gay pride marches do not include Muslims and so on and so on. You can express great pride in your own isolated special tribe, but you're not allowed to express pride in any other tribe, let alone what they all have in common. So Native Americans don't express pride in white women, and on and on and on. There's not a, u- a universal world-centric stance in the whole lot, far left or far right. So you go on and say, we are all watching with broken-hearted horror as the latest stories around the Trump administration separation of immigration families and internment of children of all ages. There's a genuine evil that seems to be creeping across the world. And a great many find themselves at a loss when it comes to responding to these nightmares. And these are indeed nightmares. It's a, a absolutely horrid situation. But there are also a few contexts that we have to continue to sort of remind ourselves that, that, that these situations are set in. Right. First, the situation of separating parents and children was actually the situation that was first created by uh, Obama. And I'm neither for nor against any political side. I'm truly integral, which means I insist on seeing the good and the bad in both the left and the right. But under Obama, uh, when entire families illegally uh, came across the border, the whole family, parent and kids, uh, were initially incarcerated. Obama was uh, heavily criticized um, for putting kids in jails uh, with their parents. And so they created separate detainment centers and put the kids in those. Uh, nobody raised a moral screaming fit at this action, although it's similar. In fact, there were few if any complaints. Now I happen to think that this Obama move was wrong when it happened. I happen to think it's wrong when it's happening now. Um, but I also happen to see the core problem as the massive failure of Congress to come up with a functional and fair immigration policy in the first place. I mean, that's what's driving this. So right now, when ICE separates kids and parents, Um, in families that are illegally trying to cross the border, they're only following the actual law created by Congress. Schumpner and Pelosi and a lot of them created these laws. If they don't like them and they certainly need to be reformed, then let's see them do the right thing and create new laws and not just break their own laws and then scream about it. Three years ago, Chuck Schutner stated loud and clear that illegal immigrants categorically were breaking the law, and they could not be treated as normal, law-abiding immigrants. That's correct. That's law as it stands now. And if we want it changed, which I think it should definitely be changed, then let's change the law not politicize it and polarize it and weaponize it. This is absolutely appalling behavior on the part of the political class on both sides of the aisle. I say really uh, shame on them um, for, for doing that, because it's truly a humanitarian crisis. And it's only being met with political um, weaponizing. You also say, so it seems obvious that the excesses of the political right present a more brute force threat to the world in the short term. However, you continue, and I think this is important, it may be that the excesses of the political left are equally corrosive, but in more insidious and long-term fashion, since they diminish our ability to adequately contain and resist the regressive forces that are now coming from the right. And from my point, of course, there's the regressive left as much as the regressive right. They both tend to be inhabiting an amber absolutism. Yeah. The, um, you say by creating postmodern social media platforms that actually reinforce anti-intellectualism, narcissism, and tribalism, by perpetuating a stream of cultural relativism that makes it impossible to say these values are superior to those values even while enforcing the superiority of their own values by plunging our culture into a Warholian nightmare where everyone's 15 minutes are stretched to infinity and become the basis of a new set of 21st century immortality projects. This gets especially difficult when a plurality of people who are signaling green virtues and slogans are not themselves coming from the green altitude cognitively, but are rather enacting and enforcing green platitudes from an often red or amber altitude. Uh, and that's absolutely the case. And that's the central case that I'm that I'm making. Mm-hmm. You say, should integral thinking, thinkers be paying at least as much attention to the excesses of the right as we do those coming from the political left? And I say again, yes, absolutely, because wrong is wrong. Yep. And what we especially have to do, um, as I say, until we get at least to around 10% second tier population, is work to mitigate the disasters of extreme left and extreme right. Both of them in their own way are nightmares and they're getting more and more and more polarized almost daily. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. How can we support you say the continued unfolding of green without saying just be more integral. Um, And again, you want to do this by example. You want to do it by diversity. Um, not by regressing to amber absolutism. You want to make real room for orange free speech, even as you attempt to transcend and include it in equality. But green has gone too far, it's gone too extremist. It's not transcending and including orange freedom, it's transcending and oppressing it. Mm. And you're therefore regressing in your zeal to absolutistic thinking. You are that is perfectly regressive. You're even being called the regressive left. So do you really want to be that reactionary? Then keep it up. And this is what's so strange to me between where the original right used to be, which is it came from Amber. It always called itself traditional. It even said and didn't mind, in a sense, being a little bit sexist, being a little bit racist. They would Mm -hmm. often volunteer this. Mm -hmm. They were militaristic, jingoistic, hyper-patriotic, and so on. And they took these values in an absolutistic sense. These were just radically, absolutely the case. And then when liberal first came along, when orange first came along, instead of pushing these absolutistic values, it started stressing individual freedom and things like free press, free speech, free right of assembly, and on and on. Mm -hmm. The core orange value was freedom. And then as Green emerged, particularly in the 60s, it no longer wanted just equal opportunity, which was freedom, Mm -hmm. so that with equal opportunity, if you're running a race, you do everything to make sure that everybody who's racing gets an equal opportunity. In the race, to get put on the, on the beginning line, that nothing's holding them back, that they're not being treated unfairly or in any prejudiced or bigoted manner, and when everybody gets to the firing line in a free and fair way, then you fire the gun, and then whoever wins, wins. Mm-hmm. That was Orange's idea of freedom. That's what the Western Enlightenment was based on. That's what the modern representative democracies were based on. Mm. When Green came along, it was no longer satisfied with having free opportunity. It wanted equal outcome. And so in this case, everybody gets up to the race, and then the race is run, but everybody has to finish at exactly the same time. And that's equal outcome. And, uh, and that's what green, that's the value that green wants. It's just pure automatic quality with no differences whatsoever. And this is what's led to a problem. Because even though they were transcending freedom, they weren't including it. Mm. And that leads to just a series of disasters. Yeah. And so strangely, over the last 100, 200 years, where Republicans or conservatives started out with amber traditional values. And the original progressives, the original left, started out with orange freedom and the Bill of Rights and all of that. As evolution itself shifted up a stage and green emerged, now we had three major levels that were actually sort of fighting each other. Yep. And the progressives, because they are progressive, they're following the evolutionary edge, they move, half of them anyway, move from orange to green. And that sort of left an opening in orange and green actually didn't even like orange. And that's the two wings of the Democratic Party now. Yep. Yep and they keep going back and forth and back and forth and it's just it's a it's a mess. Yep. And then Republicans likewise half of them bumped up a level. Yep. And so half of them went from uh traditional racist sexist ethnocentric militaristic hyperpatriotic up into orange values of freedom and individuality, small government, that kind of thing. Yep.
0: Bill Maher called them the grumpy old men who I trust my money with. Bill Maher called
1: them the grumpy old men who I trust my money with. Huh? The my money with. Yeah, well, exactly. Orange Republicans. And so now the argument is, strangely, the orange Republicans, the Wall Street Republicans, the new Republicans, they argue in favor of free speech. They're almost the only ones arguing in favor of free speech. And so they try to show up on campus and give talks about free speech, and they're yelled down by the green multicultural right. liberals. And these are the ones that have become so convinced that what they're saying is right, they become so zealous in their own beliefs, at least a number of them, that they're the ones that have actually regressed to amber. Mm-hmm. And so now we have both old timey Republicans and the farthest progressive liberals, both amber. Right. So we have these two absolutistically oriented value structures. Yep. And neither one of them, you know, even cares to listen to the other side. Yep. And what we've got left are a handful of, you know, orange conservatives arguing for free speech. And so these are the ones on the internet, like Jordan Peterson, and uh, even Milo Yiannopoulos, and Ann Coulter, and, and uh, Ben Shapiro, and all of these definitely conservative thinkers arguing for free speech. And showing up on campuses and and, and um, trying to say why free speech is the most important thing we have. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that are getting stoned, uh, yelled down, uh, thrown off campus, and so on. So we've come to this very, very strange situation that didn't exist when there were only two major stages of development, the old-timey amber traditionalists, and then the new liberal progressive Democrats. Mm -hmm. And as long as those were those two, we didn't have this problem. But when we added a third, and there's now a battle going three-way, that's when it got Insane. Yeah. That's where we are right now. And that's not going to fundamentally change. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until we get, again, at least that 10% or so makes it to second tier and we get a tipping point and some sort of integrative values start to permeate the culture. Until then, it's retribalization. Yeah, at its worst.
0: Yeah, it really is. And it seems like until then, we're going to continue to play this game at the extremes, which is a shame because the vast majority of Americans don't actually live in either of those extremes. And when the discourse is dominated by those extremes, it only makes the problem worse. Like, for example, this issue with immigration, Ken, one of the thoughts that occurs to me, well, two thoughts. First off, it really emphasizes the fact that law and policy is not inert. In other words, law and policy get enacted by particular consciousnesses that are at, you know, with particular cosmic addresses all the way up and down the, the you know, the spiral. And when it comes, for example, with this immigration law, you're right, the, the law itself, the actual, you know, the verbiage of the policy has not changed. I think it actually, most of it actually predates Obama.
1: Oh, oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and, and but but what's interesting is how two different ideologies can enact the same language in very different ways. So my understanding was under, the, under Obama, the way that law was enacted was, you know, we were experiencing a big wave of um, unaccompanied minors coming over the border with no parents at all. So there wasn't actually a physical separation of families, but we did build de- detention centers to put all these kids until we could send, you know, send them back to the country. Um, so, you know, a lot, I, I've heard the metaphor. It's almost like Obama, you know, had a really big gun and he locked it up in a safe and said, you know, don't make me use that gun. And then Trump gets elected and he takes that gun down and starts waving it around and, you know, boo, pew, pew, pew. And, you know, and it, and it starts getting kind of crazy. Right. And that's when, that's because they changed their interpretation of that very same law and said, well, no, we are going to start prosecuting all of these people as criminals and therefore the law says we need to separate the families. So again, it's, you know, when we're actually at the place of designing these laws of actually legislating, you know, we one of the things that we want our leaders to pay attention to is how the exact same verbiage can be interpreted and executed in vastly different ways. Um, And the other thing, Ken, that I noticed with the immigration story is neither the, the left or the right has an actual, neither of them has a solution as good as the orange solution that we've been using for the last couple hundred years. They both keep people, populations separate from each other. Amber out of xenophobia, keep those people yeah. away from me. Uh- the left through this sort of um, naive multiculturalism, where it's like, yeah, come on over, but you don't need to assimilate, you don't need to integrate, you just have your own pot. And in fact, we're not allowed to say anything about your, your, you know, culture and your values, and you're not allowed to say anything about mine, and let's just coexist. And there's, you know, what's what's being lost in that multiculturalism is the actual American melting pot, which is, I think, an orange set of values that's probably the easiest values to transpose into, into a teal and turquoise sort of new expression. What yeah. we want is an integration of these different cultures. We want, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, Linda Sassour, who is one of the leaders of the Women's March and, and is uh, a very uh, strong advocate for Palestine, um, she actually gave a speech where she said it was Muslims' job to engage in this country, in jihad, that their job was mm. not to, she specifically said, our job is not to engage in assimilation. Right. Well, that, right. that's exactly the disaster. That's right. And it's also uh, the core of, of an extremely good book uh, called "The Strange Death of Europe. By Douglas Murray. Mm. And he's tracked very, very carefully what's been happening in Europe um, as immigration has gotten out of, out of control. Right, um, But it does show the extraordinarily different ways that these different stages of human development look at these major different problems. And the point is, they all see a completely different world. Yeah. They all have completely different wishes, values, and motivations about it. Yep. And we're not going to be able to clear that up until we recognize that fact. Yeah. But the point is, we don't allow that there are actually different value structures that will see the world differently. That's right. You just think no, there's just one world, one correct way to see it. I'm right, you're wrong. That's right. That's as far as we've gotten. That's right. Disastrous.
0: Yeah, and it's and again for me it really underlines how critical these three principles of non exclusion, enfoldment, and enactment really are. We just talked about the different ways that you know these laws can be enacted that You know, geez, from the surface, it looks like these might as well be two completely different sets of laws, but it's the same law being enacted in different ways. What I'm also noticing is, you know, the amber, the xenophobia, they're not interested in non-exclusion or enfoldment, right? Keep that shit away from me. No, just, you know, with with the left, with green, what we're seeing is the dangers of when you have non-exclusion, which is multiculturalism, we want every, you know, there's space for everyone, but no enfoldment. Right, yes. we want space for everyone, but we don't want any connectivity, we don't want any influence being shared, we don't want that assimilation. In fact, it's assimilation is a dirty word, um, and that's 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 terrible, yeah,
1: yeah. and that's a disaster. Um, and unfortunately, um, that's the way it's headed right now. So it's really, uh, it's going to be a horse race, not between whichever side comes up with a better program because I'm pretty much convinced neither side is capable of coming up with a better program right now. The real race right now is between the number of individuals not that immigrate into particular countries, but the number of individuals that make it into second tier. Right. Yep. So yep. that's and, what the real race is that we're
0: absolutely. Running. And I just want to point people to a a discussion that you had with Roger Walsh. Yeah. Uh, that we published a few months ago that was talking about exactly that. It's the one piece of diversity and multiculturalism that we're not actually paying attention to, which is a diversity right. of altitude. Yep. Um, and it's a really really great talk between Ken and Walsh. It's on Life. Yep. I encourage all you guys to check it out. I hope you enjoyed this excerpt from the very first episode of The Ken Show. If you want to check out the rest of this episode, we invite you to go to integrallife.com and sign up to become a member. Your first month is only $1, and it gives you access to all of the perspectives, practices, and presentations throughout the site. Sign up today, and you'll also receive a free enrollment to the Ken Wilber Biography Series.